Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the wizarding world. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We will take a break from chapter by chapter this week because we're going to talk about some very interesting developments concerning Fantastic Beasts and the Cursed Child. Both are making some changes to win over the fans. And we also have a review of a brand new Cursed Child book that is super cool. So we're excited to talk about that as well. Um, by the way, just a quick reminder, though, if you want to stay up to date on all of these developments that we talk about today, be sure to follow us on social media, MuggleCast, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So, y'all, it's been about a year since Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald hit theaters. Feels like a lifetime ago. Wow. And WizardingWorld.com, the new Pottermore, has announced some new information concerning Fantastic Beasts 3. First of all, the new film will feature Ilvermorny Professor Eulalie Hicks in, quote, a bigger role. Now, this is the character played by Jessica Williams, and we see her in that Order of the Phoenix-type book, that Phoenix book that um, Nicholas Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas Flamel, thank you, opens up towards the end of Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. So there's that. Does anyone have any predictions how she's going to be featured in the story more? Do you think we'll see Ilvermorny more, this means? Do we think we'll see Ilvermorny at all? Like, I, I, because I've been waiting, like, we saw Hogwarts at the end of Crimes of Grindelwald. That was super exciting. We saw it um, in flashbacks. But, you know, if we have a prominent Ilvermorny professor, does it stand to reason that Ilvermorny will get the big screen treatment? If not in the third one, maybe by four or five. yeah. Because all I remember is J.K. Rowling like went and had lunch with Jessica Williams, and they tweeted together. And I think the announcement we're best friends. Yeah, and the announcement, and then she was like, "Yuleli will be in the second one, but much bigger role in three. Like we had heard about this when it was first announced, right? So it isn't a large revelation, is it? Right, but but so will it be that Yuleli Hicks is in Rio with them? Or helping them on behalf of Dumbledore, on behalf of Nicholas Flamel to uh, work against Grindelwald. Like, what's it going to be? Or will she be teaching at Ilvermorny when Queenie and or Tina, more particularly probably Tina, because Queenie's with Grindelwald, uh, shows up at her old alma mater and asks for help? It's a great question. I think that's pretty likely. Also, I could definitely see her being in Rio, also because there's a Brazilian wizarding school. So maybe she's helping out with something there. Ooh, could we see the- On Bra- assignment. Yeah. Could we see maybe the Brazilian wizarding school? Do we think that maybe we'll see most of the ones that J.K. Rowling kind of dreamed up for and, and had written on Pottermore, like Mahatakura in Japan? Yes, um, that's going to be the movie title. Fantastic Beasts and all of the wizarding schools. <laughs> We're just going to tour all of them for you in this third one. I mean, it begs the question. I, I at least would kind of like to see Ilvermorny just because as an American, I'm like, oh, that's the American wizarding school. I actually don't think we're going to see Ilvermorny. Not in this movie, at least, because mm. of a story we'll talk about later. Variety has some interesting new information about what they're doing with Fantastic Beasts. Right, today. right. Um, I tend to agree with Laura that we will see this character in rio just not sure the role that she's going to be playing as it relates to newt and other characters just yet i think we need to learn a little bit more about her character outside of the fact that she is a ilvermorny professor and it wasn't explicitly made clear that that is 
what her role is in the last film. She just happened to be communicating with Nicholas Flamel. There's there's nothing that made you think that, oh, Ilvermorny. And I just don't think... We were in America in the first movie. I do not see it playing a major role moving forward. Just don't. Yeah. Yeah. And... Speaking of Rio, that is another thing that they confirmed. The movie is going to be at least visiting Rio de Janeiro. And this isn't totally a surprise because J.K. Rowling had tweeted out a hint that Fantastic Beast 3 would be at least taking place there about a year ago, back when she was on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess it was nice to get that confirmation. But the big news from WizardingWorld.com is that Steve Cloves. The seven-time Harry Potter screenwriter, he wrote every Harry Potter movie except for Order of the Phoenix, will be co-writing Fantastic Beasts 3 with J.K. Rowling. And this is very significant because J.K. Rowling did not share a writing credit with him on the first two Fantastic Beasts movies. He was a producer, but this is the first time they're saying he is co-writing. That's a big deal for multiple reasons. You you have to assume that he is co-writing because the second movie wasn't universally well-received. A lot of people liked it, but a lot of people didn't, and a lot of people were saying the plot was muddled and the ending was confusing. I respect and appreciate the people who who loved the movie, but it just did not work for everyone, and that's a problem because they still have three more movies to go, and I think what we all realized, especially after movie two, because we all, I think, really loved movie one, is that J.K. Rowling is just not a screenwriter. She's not, and that's okay. She needs help, and who better than the guy who wrote the majority of the Harry Potter movies. So how do you guys feel about Steve Cloves stepping in and writing with J.K. Rowling? I think it depends on whether or not you're a fan of the films, right? This could either be great news or terrible news, depending upon what you thought of how it came to life on the screen. I I think Steve Cloves is is a great fit here. I think it makes a whole lot of sense. I'm not sure why he wasn't brought in earlier on even though he was there, as you say, as a producer, I'm sure he was consulted, though, by J.K. Rowling throughout the course of the first two films, just given that he was there physically. So I just like the idea of him coming on. As you said, he's been the screenwriter for all but one of the Potter films and is a trusted voice, somebody that I think fans uh, will recognize and, and be happy to see is going to be involved in this next movie. I think also, and this is coming from somebody who has mixed feelings about the Potter films. There were things about them I really liked. There were things about them that I thought didn't quite land. But I do think that J.K. Rowling and Steve Clovis make a good team. Mm. So I'm excited to see what comes out of this, particularly because this is not a book to movie adaptation. It's a purely original story intended for cinema. So... I don't feel negative about this at all because they're not trying to adapt anything. They're trying to craft a story that doesn't already exist in book form. So I'm good with it. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree that uh, Steve Clovis as a writer, I was looking up his other um, credits, actually, because I didn't know. I was like, well, what's this guy done besides Harry Potter? Um, and he wrote the screenplay for the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man, uh, as well as much earlier in his career, uh, the fabulous Baker Boys. Uh, back in 1989, he wrote that. There was another movie called Wonder Boys, and he's writing and directing the Curious Incident of the Dog in Nighttime, which I believe David Heyman, back when he spoke with us 
in an episode 200 of MuggleCast, uh, said that he was trying to greenlit. So it, it's very clear that Steve Clovis is part of the team. And as you say, Andrew, he was, you know, an executive producer, a producer on the first two Fantastic Beasts films. I like that he's being brought more front and center to probably or uh, ostensibly fix uh, some of the issues with the writing of the films. I think you're underscoring it, though, a bit, Eric. I think th- he's the savior. If, if <laughs> I hate that. In word. my opinion, for this series, he is the savior. He's he's coming in to save this franchise, essentially. Well, this is the guy who also presided over them cutting the entire Marauder backstory. Uh, and the Harry has no idea why his parents behave the way they, or but his parents' friends to point, behave the way they do. This is not a book to film adaptation. So right. yeah. he may be cutting things, but we have no idea what he's cutting because it doesn't exist <laughs> right. no, in our no. minds. But I but I mean but I mean the, the, the reason I bring up the Marauders thing is because it was essential character backstory. Like I don't think I think what we need is to like most of all out of Fantastic Beasts is to understand why the characters are the way they are and make the decisions that they do and live with the characters in the moment. Now, the only time I think of in the Harry Potter films where we got that is Deathly Hallows part one, where the plot was not so fast paced that the actors themselves could bring the characters to life. Deathly Hallows part one. And why was that? That was because they split one book into two movies. Right. If, you know, we could look back on the series and wish that, they split all of these books into multiple movies, but that just didn't seem feasible at the time. And this is why they need to do a Harry Potter TV show to let it all come yep. out. And you'll get all this character development and we'll all be very happy. Written by Steve Clovis. He doesn't even need to write it. Just adapt J.K. Rowling's book word for word. I mean, movies do it all the time where they they take the time to focus on the characters. The problem with J.K. Rowling's movies so far that she's written is she tries to do too much in such a small span. Think of all the extra characters like Yusuf Kama that were introduced for the first time in Crimes of Grindelwald. We barely had enough time for the core four. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think you need a smaller character piece. Yes. And I bet we are going to see multiple characters just suddenly disappear. Like, I don't think Yus- Yusuf Kama is going to be involved in <laughs> Fantastic Beasts. He just seems so random. Um, you know, the, the only character that they confirmed in this announcement outside of the core four and Jude Law and Johnny Depp was Jessica Williams playing Eulalie Hicks. So I think they might be looking at the script or J.K. Rowling's early version of it back when Crimes of Grindelwald first came out. And they were probably like, "Mm, we probably shouldn't do more of this with all these characters and all these plot lines. And I think they've spent the past year honing it in. And that's probably when Steve Clovis got involved. And I just... I really don't like when people say they don't like they didn't like the Harry Potter movies. Were they really that bad? No, not at all. I don't think Steve Clovis has a deep understanding of the Wizarding World. I think he knows what fans want, and like I believe Laura, you said he has a great relationship with J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. You guys might remember J.K. Rowling and Steve Clovis did a a one on one interview with each other. For I believe Deathly Hallows Part Two, it was one of the special features on the DVD. Oh, yeah. It was an amazing chat. J.K. Rowling also did that with Dan Radcliffe, and you could just see the beautiful relationship that Clovis and Rowling built over the years, and that very special understanding that they had when developing the series. Yep, I know. If there's one thing Harry Potter fans want from Steve Cloves moving forward, is more 
Ron's lines given to Hermione. Definitely. Or in this case, Newt's lines given to Tina. <laughs> Tina's going to be the new Newt now. Now that he's uh, brought on. Do you on have an example of this happening in the Harry Potter movies? I'm forgetting. Yes. Oh, there are many. Absolutely. So in Deathly Hallows Part 2, when Hermione does the whole, we'll go with you into the forest, that was Ron's line. <laughs> <laughs> and in the movie, they just had him standing back there looking kind of dumb. Yeah, what was that? I was expecting that... at least a bro hug. <laughs> well, like, I, I, that is one of my major gripes with the Harry Potter films is that Ron sort of he was not the Ron that we actually knew in the books. And I felt like they used him as a lot of comic relief. And we didn't get to see the more nuanced portrayal of him that we see in the books very often, right? It's Yeah, it's kind of character assassination, which is why I'm worried that maybe this isn't the greatest guy to treat your character, like to give us more about the characters. I don't know. It's a question mark. But who else besides Steve Clovis could do this, right? Oh, you nobody. Can't... You yeah. can't risk bringing in somebody else who hasn't written in the Wizarding World before. I agree. You could potentially screw it up again. And then they get Steve Clovis for Fantastic Beasts 4 and 5. But at that point, the series is more than halfway yeah. over. So mm-hmm. it's... I, I think mm-hmm. part of the challenge for Steve Clovis now is that when you look at what happened between the first and second films, you were so invested in those four characters and somebody just brought this up earlier, when you get to Crimes of Grindelwald, they're almost put on the back burner because now it's Dumbledore and Grindelwald. And you just, you want to know more about those four characters. You want to spend more time with them. And I just think that you lost that. The connection was lost moving from movie one to movie two because, you know, now you're getting back to the familiar, right? Now you have Dumbledore, you have Grindelwald, you have Hogwarts. It's, it was just, it was too messy. And now I think Steve Clovis is going to be challenged with how do I bring those four characters, particularly Newt, back to the forefront? Because that's who I thought this series was really supposed to be about. But it's turning into being more about the Dumbledores and Aurelius and, and you know, hopefully Aberforth. But, <laughs> you know, it, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't think they have room to add more characters. So you might not hear much from Aberforth in the series, unfortunately. Oh, I think they'll cast um, a younger Aberforth. <laughs> so um you could play younger Aberforth. You've got you still got some young looks on yeah. you. Yeah. There we go. And you've got a <laughs> stellar goat with you as your companion. I do. Companion. That that is something that I think we should push for in uh, Fantastic Beast Three. Cast Micah in Fantastic Beast Three, you cowards. Hashtag <laughs> So, the story came out from WizardingWorld.com, and then a day later, Variety offered a behind-the-scenes glimpse of what is going on with Fantastic Beast 3's development, and they framed their story around Warner Brothers being eager to boost the box office performance after Crimes of Grindelwald performed worse than Fantastic Beast 1 did, and just as a reminder, Fantastic Beast 1 earned about $800 million worldwide, while Fantastic Beast 2 earned about $650 million worldwide, and that's... A little worrying for Warner Brothers because, yeah, that is still a ton of money. But they have three more films to go. And they probably want to do more Wizarding World movies or a TV show after this. So they want to keep those box offices gigantic. Why is it concerning, though? What's the track record for sequels in terms of how they earn compared to the originals? Do we have a sense? 
Yeah, the, the first one is definitely always the biggest because there's pent-up demand. In this case, Deathly Hallows Part 2 came out in 2011, and then Fantastic Beast 1 came out five years later. So people were super eager to go back into J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World. But I think they were probably expecting closer to maybe $700 million or $750 million. And then, of course, better reviews. Yeah, I, th- I think reviews certainly hurt people going that maybe would have otherwise seen it. But also, this film had a lot of controversy coming into it as well because oh, that's of true. Johnny Depp. Uh, there was a lot of backlash too around uh, Nagini and um, the the Maledictus curse. So, I wonder how much those elements impacted the box office sales at the end of the day as well. Yeah. It's possible. That's a really good point. Fair point. So we learned a few interesting things from this variety report. First of all, Fantastic Beast 3 is, quote, expected to put more of a spotlight on Jude Law's young Albus Dumbledore and set more action at Hogwarts. Variety is describing it as taking the series back to its Hogwarts roots. (laughs) Wait a minute. This was just what Micah said. Don't do this. Well, and also, Fantastic Beast was never rooted in Hogwarts, so I assume this variety report means that it's just it's it's bringing the franchise back to the Hogwarts roots. Mm. Okay, this is what I just said. This... I, I don't like this. Do not bring it back to Hogwarts. You can have Hogwarts there, like they did in Crimes of Grindelwald, but to me, this film series is about adults, and <laughs> that's why we got the Ministry in both settings in america and then in paris and even in london we saw it but to me this this is more of an adult series and if we're flashing back to being at hogwarts with a young albus dumbledore i I don't know i i'm I'm not feeling good about this we all want to go back to hogwarts though right not in not in this way (laughs) i'm playing a bit of devil's advocate here but no that's that's fine let me let me give you so at the end of Crimes of Grindelwald, Newt meets Dumbledore at Hogwarts, and he has the blood pack, right? And right. then they walk into Hogwarts. They need to open this third movie up with a continuation of that scene. They're going into Hogwarts. They go into Dumbledore's office. They sit down to have some foreign tea, <laughs> and they're just talking it all out. And they're talking about what they need to do. To destroy this blood pack. Here's the problem. We also need to jump 16 years into the future at some point between this film and film five. Yep. Like, there's a lot of ground that needs to be covered. They can't keep doing pickup scenes <laughs> from previous movies. Like it's they... not a pickup scene. Yeah. But uh, don't you think we would deserve that after waiting, what, three years for this next movie to come out? We're all wondering, is Credence truly Aurelius Dumbledore? Now we've been waiting three years for some answers. Let's open this movie up and jump right into it. What does Albus think about all this? Is that true? Is Grindelwald lying? And how do we destroy this blood pack? It's just so interesting because the Crimes of Grindelwald movie is only set six months after the first Fantastic Beasts film. And we still get a lot of like jarring character developments like Queenie and Love Potioning Jacob and um, Tina and Newt's misunderstanding. But you know, I don't know what the solution is between jumping through time and bringing us all as an audience up to speed on where the characters are at. I, I mean, if I could just guess, I would say at least three years would have passed between movies two and movie three in in the world, in world. Mm. Um, 
and you know we can get those answers we can figure out what dumbledore like if he's still uh slogging around with the the blood packed on his you know in his coat pocket or what but i think we're gonna have to get those answers from a much more advanced perspective and i think also to eric's point about the time jump that needs to happen we also have to see young tom riddle there's no way they don't show that in these movies. Right. In the opening of the Chamber of the Secrets. But that, right. that is the shocking part is if you're going to double down on Hogwarts, I would absolutely wait until Tom Riddle is like 11, 13, 15, as he will be mm-hmm. in 1943, 1942. We're talking about movie four or movie five here where it would roughly be set around the time. Again, this is all going off of. Dumbledore is defeating Grindelwald, which happens in 1945, according to the Chocolate Frog card in book one. (laughs) So uh, presuming the last movie ends in 1945, the Tom Riddle Chamber of Secrets moaning Myrtle death thing is going to all be movie four, movie five, not movie three. So we already know we're going to have a lot of time spent at Hogwarts in future films. Why would you not just, you know, really just spend more time with Newt and the core four? Traveling the world, going to Rio, looking up beasts. This is what I thought this movie series was going to be about. Right. So it sounds like you think that the big time jump has to happen in this movie. Or between this one or the next one. It. I mean, I just would have preferred that they would have jumped evenly, maybe three or four years per. Like, like Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, is like an 18 month jump every time you do a Star Wars. And that just kind of makes sense. Well, that's... Oh. Well, what if like... At the beginning of the movie, we see Dumbledore and Newt at Hogwarts, and everybody's happy, and we we get a couple answers, and then they just jump ahead five years. Yeah. Didn't they do that in Avengers Endgame? They jumped ahead like five years, yeah. right? Yeah. At yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So just do that. I, you know, Grindelwald's in jail. <laughs> uh, well, is he in jail? At the, I forget what. No. No, he's no. not. He escaped. Okay, so get Grindelwald back in jail, so there's no evil afoot <laughs> then jump ahead five well, years the funny thing is grindelwald is at nermengard in the end of movie two but nermengard's not a prison yet so he is in jail well that you of. know of you don't know what those other rooms hold right now oh right oh that's right uh colin farrell's there graves yeah. is there. i think so that would be amazing <laughs> just bring graves back that but would be truly amazing yeah i tend to agree eric with what you're saying in that we've had eight movies worth of hogwarts right and I want to see other places within the Wizarding World. Let's go to Rio. Let's go to Godric's Hollow. If we're going to spend time with young Dumbledore, let's see what happened to Ariana. I'm sure we will, but yeah. trying to put so much emphasis on Hogwarts, I think, takes away from this series. Sure, fans are going to love to go there. They're going to love to see it. They're going to love to run into old characters that should be there in that timeline. McGonagall, but (laughs) I think if you're trying to set this entire film series around Hogwarts again, it it just loses something. You want it there for those special moments. You don't want it to be the root of what this series now is all about. All these characters are older. They're adults. They're not going to school. So let's move away from that. And also with Grindelwald, one thing I thought about too is at some point, he's going to realize that he no longer has the blood pact, right? And and how does that play <laughs> out? He's going to feel around in his pockets. Don't! Damn, that Niffler. Niffler. No! <laughs> so, I mean, I will say I agree with that point. Um, 
I feel like the reason that the Hogwarts scenes were all so successful in Crimes of Grindelwald was that there was so much going on. The plot was so muddled that getting something familiar felt really nice in the context of Uh. that film. And what makes me a little uneasy about them going back to Hogwarts and spending potentially spending so much time there at this point in the series is it makes me wonder what kind of story we can anticipate. Like, have they started pumping the brakes on the intended direction of this franchise and saying, you know what, let's just play it safe and go back to Hogwarts? Right. The, what, what bothers me possibly most about the Hogwarts stuff from Crimes of Grindelwald is that we got Newt, we got Lita. Lita was actually hinted at in movie one, we all remember. Zoe Kravitz's uh, photograph was in Newt's little cabin. Um, yeah, and- what is it with them in like, photographs of characters that appear in the next movie. <laughs> They're going to show up in the next movie? Yeah, I don't They're know. laying don't know. hints. But Crimes of Grindelwald as a sequel did what sequels are supposed to do on that front, which is let's, you know, a character or something that was hinted in movie one is going to come back in movie two. So they did that, which is great with Lita. But we got Lita for what was presumably her last ever film because of her character's seeming demise. And they didn't even explain for all the time they had young Newt, young Lita at Hogwarts. They didn't even explain how Newt got expelled, which is a big deal that keeps getting brought up in the films about how Newt was kicked out. And we know that Lita and Newt had something to do with it. So how is it you spend 30 minutes at Hogwarts or whatever it is in Crimes of Grindelwald? Don't even explain how Newt was kicked out. And I, I, I just don't even think the Hogwarts scenes we got in Crimes of Grindelwald were used to their full potential. No, one of them was a carbon copy of Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> I don't think the primary objective of this film series has changed, nor is it changing because of this information we're getting about more Dumbledore and more Hogwarts. As far as we know, J.K. Rowling always set out to eventually tell the story of Dumbledore and Grindelwald and their big battle, and the end of the global wizarding war. I think all this potentially means is they are going to add a couple more scenes than they were originally anticipating, just to throw us some bones, just to help promote the movie. Because as this box office analyst said, who Variety spoke to for this article, if you look at what worked with Crimes of Grindelwald, it was when they went back to Hogwarts. He's right. A lot of the marketing campaign did have to do with going back to Hogwarts. And how excited were we? We said on the show, we were so excited to see Hogwarts in this new vivid detail. I mean, the, the school never looked better thanks to where CGI is at these days. So I think it's not going to suddenly all shift to Hogwarts. They're just going to get a couple more scenes in to give people like me a bone. Well, that almost got. Yeah, I was going to say, (laughs) as long as you get your bone, Andrew, as long as you get excited. Yes. No, I want, and I would be fine with that. I just don't want them to rely too heavily on, you know, having Hogwarts in their back pocket. Yeah, I I don't don't use it as a crutch. Yeah, I don't want it to be a contingency plan. Right, because part of what I thought was so successful about Fantastic Beasts was that. This entire new part of the wizarding world was open to us. And yes, it was based in New York here in the US, but there's many of those opportunities that exist throughout the world. And it seems like they're going to do that in this next film with Rio. And they did it with Paris, I think somewhat successfully. But that's, at least from my standpoint, 
what I want to see. I want to see this Wizarding World grow and expand because, again, I, I don't want to keep harping on the adult aspect of it, but because Harry Potter was about mainly a, a story that centered around Hogwarts, that's where we spent the majority of our time. Right. This allows the world to expand in a way that the Potter series did not. Yeah, and you got such great actors. The core four characters are amazing. I mean, Academy Award winning Eddie Redmayne as Newt's commander. Like, don't overlook characters. Like, Allison Sudol as Queenie, don't overlook her. Don't underuse her the way that movie two did. It it would be, it's just a crime. That's a crime. I also, Dumb, I, I, just like in terms of what I personally really want to make sure we see in this series, I want to go to Africa. Yeah. I want to see the wandless magic. Mm-hmm. Mm. I will just add, Mike is kind of talking like there's no purpose for Hogwarts here, but Dumbledore is teaching at Hogwarts, and that's always been the case, even before Fantastic Beasts. He was teaching there at this time. So I think there's good reason to be spending more time at Hogwarts. But like, what about my point? Like, we're going to have to during the Chamber of Secrets and stuff, right? So Right, right. It just seems too soon to double down on Hogwarts now. But, you know, we, we, we speculated this for years, like even with the reveal of Grindelwald at the end of movie one, we speculated, will the Grindelwald subplot or Grindelwald as the main overarching villain, does that take away from whatever Newt is doing with the beast? And I think we all can agree, like, yes, it absolutely, like the series kind of suffers from J.K. Rowling wedging whatever Newt is doing with the Dumbledore-Grindelwald conflict. So the right. question is, do you, after seeing movie two, how can you watch movie two and really say we need more Dumbledore-Grindelwald and not... We need more Newt traveling the world. How can you say that, like, as a producer, as a creator? Because that's not my take. The other thing, though, is that when you add these schools, you also have to build these worlds. Right. And when you're limited to, what, two and a half hours? Oh, that's, there's just that's not enough time. Are they pre-blaming Reason. pacing on not no, going to No, I'm pre-blaming pacing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so moving on a little bit. Also in this Variety report, apparently execs at Warner Brothers are, quote, high on the script they've seen, believing it represents a big step forward in quality. I take that to mean it's just been simplified. (laughs) (laughs) And Fantastic Beasts 3 is, quote, said to pack in more breadcrumbs for Potter enthusiasts to obsess over. So that's that's good. Let's just make sure they're all canon. Yeah. (laughs) The breadcrumbs... (laughs) Should make sense. Nothing terribly jarring. Yeah. If, right. If you had to and pick I, one breadcrumb for this upcoming film, what would it be? A crouton. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say sourdough. Mm. No, I would just something related to Dumbledore and Grindelwald's past. Maybe this will be the movie we get all those, all those flashbacks and we see the fight that led to Ariana Dumbledore's death. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we really want right now, right? Hmm. maybe Hagrid <laughs> Hagrid mm-hmm. yeah I do want to see Newt giving Aragog to Hagrid yeah. which but Hagrid's still only two or three years old depending on the time jump yeah well it's way here's, too soon here's the thing though that I, I was curious about with the time jump do you think they're going to stay true to it do you think it has to be 1945 I understand the relevance of that year but for the purposes of this film, we only have three more to go, and it seems like they haven't done a whole lot of time jumping at all. Yeah. So I wonder. J.K. Rowling's got to have a plan. That's why Steve Clovis yeah. is here. And I, 
I think there's going to be a period of calm in the wizarding world, and that's when they can jump ahead. That's all it's going to take. Mm-hmm. But then you risk doing like if say if Grindelwald is recaptured, you risk doing the same type of escape from prison kind of thing that you've seen before. True. Yeah, I don't think that they can put him back in jail at this point. It would be far too repetitive. So do you think he'll just go into hiding? He might go into hiding. He might go underground and try to build up his base. I mean, we Mm -hmm. saw sort of the beginnings of that at the end of the second film. So that would be my guess. Yeah. Variety says that Clovis was also brought in for his inherent understanding of the world that will help Rowling better service the fans for part three. Yeah, again, understanding of the world. If there's something smart that is said, it comes from Hermione and never from Ron. Also, just understanding how to write a screenplay. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I, I, in all seriousness, and I like—I mean, I credit the first film with getting me into Harry Potter. Nothing short of it could have. Believe me, I read, but it—it it just, <laughs> you know, I—I <laughs> I think that there is a lot to be said for Steve Clovis coming on in such a big way, and I—I I, I, my 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 trending my forefront foremost emotion is uh, relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they're acknowledging something was slightly off with the writing of the previous films. You know, they're working to fix it great. Even if they're only guided by wanting to get that $150 million back that, you know, movie two didn't make that movie one did. I'm fine. Just understand that we're not asking for too much. We're asking to understand the characters. We're asking that some time be spent with these people that were painstakingly introduced over the course of the first movie and then thrown to the side in movie two. We just want to, you know, we want to know these people. We want to like these people. This does make me feel bad for Joe. I feel like she's kind of being thrown under the bus here. Mm-hmm. Where there's like this widespread acknowledgement like, yeah, we know movie two was bad. We're bringing in Steve Clovis to save the day. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Super bad Steve. Yeah, there were flaws with the film, certainly. And I think one of the biggest problems was it was just too crowded. There were too mm-hmm. many characters and too many plot lines but J.K. Rowling is not the only person working on these movies. Right, Presumably, right. there were a number of people who could have made this call before the movie reached theaters. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's- and, and now it just kind of feels like they're being like, oh, yeah, we know J.K. Rowling doesn't know how to write screenplays. Don't worry. We're going to fix it. <laughs> Joe, you well, suck. It just feels rude. I, not just it any feels people, rude to me. The, These are not just... You people who are brought on to the Fantastic Beast series, you're talking about a person who has been with the Potter series as a producer since the very beginning in David Heyman and David Yates, who directed more than half of the Potter films. So these are people who should have, I agree, Laura, stepped in because if you look at movie one, I don't think many of us had issues with, with how that was written. No, no, the no, first was one was great. And there was such a drop off going into Crimes of Grindelwald that, yeah, they were trying to pack too much in and it just fell flat. And I don't think that's on J.K. Rowling totally. I think no. that's on yeah. the people who are around her who certainly have more experience in what would make for a good film. I vaguely remember when this Fantastic Beast deal came together. There was a report that said that J.K. Rowling had final say over the script. And I think what happened was everybody just trusted Joe. She wrote the books. Obviously, they were unspeakably huge successes. 
So she'll be able to create the same magic with the movies. And movie one came out. And like you said, Micah, we all really enjoyed that movie. So then there was further trust in her. And then she puts together Crimes of Grindelwald. And maybe hmm. David Heyman, Yates, other producers, WB, they looked at it and they were like, eh. But also she's Joe. And we can't say no to Joe because she's done so much great work and she knows what the people want. And then there was a bit of a stumble with Crimes of Grindelwald. So then maybe they had to take a step back and sit down with J.K. Rowling and be like, hey, you know, we have some concerns with where this is going. We want to make sure that the franchise is um, that the remaining films are as good as possible. So let's take some time, review the script again. Let's get you closer involved with Steve Clovez to work together on the script. And then hopefully we'll be able to improve. I just feel like there was a situation there was a there was a um there was a setting where nobody really wanted to say, Hey Joe, I don't think Crimes and Grindelwald should be this way. They just trusted her. Yeah. And look, people make mistakes. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no creator is going to put out their best work all the time. Mm-hmm. I I've been comparing this to J.K. Rowling being one of our favorite musicians. Everybody puts out a bad album. <laughs> Crimes of Grindelwald and the Casual Vacancy have been J.K. Rowling's Less than perfect albums, <laughs> but that's fine. They'll put out better albums. You don't want to throw Cursed Child in no, there? No, I don't want to throw Cursed Child well, in there. Well, she didn't write that. <laughs> exactly. She approved it. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, she, she approved it, and she really she really liked it, according to this new book that we're about to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I guess to me, just the way that all of this press is interpreting uh, the news coming out of WB it sounds very much like there's not an acknowledgement that this was a team fumble. Mm. And it's sort of being like true implied that it was a JK Rowling fumble. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I don't think that's true because yeah, that is mean. Yeah. Cause like we said, she wasn't the only person working on this movie, No, but it benefits them to just point the blame at Joe because they don't want to have this hurt their own reputations for other films. You know, they have to continue making movies. J.K. Rowling doesn't really need to right? from a financial standpoint. Yeah, I guess it's just with all of the fandom hate that Joe has gotten in the last couple of years, it just feels like they're piling on a little bit. I don't like it. So Variety also says that Warner Brothers, quote, still expects five films for a fantastic piece. That's not the... Uh... So not, not six. There's not going to be a movie five part two. I don't think they're adding. No, no. Hey. It, that phrase still expects doesn't. Um, it doesn't give you the greatest vote of confidence. <laughs> you never know. If Superman Steve comes in and saves the day, there could be a sixth film. Joe, Maybe I've got ideas seven. for eight more movies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one other thing I just wanted to add, though, kind of going off of what Laura said is I think the expectation is unfair to hold anything to the level of the Potter series, right? That's always going to be J.K. Rowling's most successful accomplishment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And whether you're looking at Casual Vacancy or you're looking at Cursed Child or the Fantastic Beast series, I think we should just be okay with the fact that it's not going to live up to the expectations of Totally agree. What Potter? Right. She wrote Casual Vacancy for herself, and that was the only that was the intended audience. <laughs> so it's and she's for her. made her contribution to the world. <laughs> I don't think she really yeah, gives a you right. know what about 
yeah. anything else moving <laughs> forward. I'm, sh- I'm sure she wants it to be quality, and I'm sure she wants to deliver for the fans. I'm not saying that, but she doesn't owe anything to anybody, despite what you know we talk about on the show. Yeah, I agree. So we asked our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash mugglecast, how would you like to see Hogwarts and Dumbledore be further incorporated without a feeling like it was just to please the fans? We have a few different responses here. Julianne said, more Dumbledam moments can't hurt. Dumbledam. Damn, Jude Law. Robbie was more negative. He said, I agree with the idea that putting Dumbledore's story of Grindelwald with Newt's Fantastic Beasts hurts both storylines it really should have been one movie series about making newt's book and one series about grindelwald that's something i think we'll be talking about more in the future how this started right solely focused on newt and has transitioned to something else but i think i've said this before the title fantastic beasts also refers to the beasts within us yeah obscurus yeah grindelwald's demons dumbledore's demons newt's demons and those actual beasts. And I think part of it has to do with the writing, <laughs> as we've talked about, that it, so far, the, the just the way that these two stories have come together haven't made a whole lot of sense. And it's going to take some time, but clearly these stories are interwoven. That That's something that J.K. Rowling hinted at from early on. It's just a matter of it not necessarily having come together in the best way possible thus far. Mm-hmm. Valeria says probably an unpopular opinion but I feel like the only way to actually dedicate the attention it needs to the fight between Grindelwald and Dumbledore would be to take the story entirely away from Newt and the American Wizards <gasps> a movie about Newt's relationship with magical creatures and his travels around the world was a great idea his relationship to the wizarding world is an unqualified not politically inclined wizard seems to only serve the purpose of extending a successful movie into a poorly planned saga, but they've named it Fantastic Beasts, so what can they do about it? Beasts need to be involved in the war, and the only way to do that is through Newt. So Dumbledore might have to be Newt's counselor in all matters and do the same role he did for Harry. Maybe the only way to destroy the blood pack will be to discover, will be to find this creature that is very difficult to find, and Dumbledore's going to send Newt off to uh, Brazil to find this creature and then stomp on the blood pack, and then <laughs> that'll be it. I have a, I have a, a feeling that it's going to have something to do with the 12 uses of dragon's blood. I'm so glad you said that, because one of our listeners wrote in and believes that the title of Fantastic Beast 3, his name is Omar... He says it's going to be called Fantastic Beasts 3, The Seventh Use of Dragon's Blood. How cool would that be? <laughs> I would die. <laughs> I don't want numbers in the title, but otherwise that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. You don't want numbers in the title. Yeah, because it's well, like, already... it's, well, because it's, it's very confusing because it would actually be film 11 in the series. If you include all the Harry Potter, eight Harry Potter films and the two Fantastic Beasts, it'd be the 11th film set in the Wizarding World. But the number seven would be in the title. It's just confusing. Hard to keep what? track. Or are they counting like... them that way? Yeah, well, can, yeah, no, people are counting it that because how do you abbreviate no. that? Yeah, what's Stop. what's the abbreviate? Is it FB3 number seven? Like at oh my seven DB? Are we just going to abbreviate seven yeah, DB? What's, what's the hashtag? Yeah, seven DB. <laughs> also, Eric, they might Star Wars it and make the first Fantastic Beasts film movie one. Well, don't get me started on how uh, <laughs> difficult it is for me to remember the title of the latest Star Wars films. I can't keep them straight. <laughs> Ugh. 
So I feel like with all this in mind, oh, we want to go back to Hogwarts more. We want to spend more time with Dumbledore. I think the title might actually have Dumbledore in it, but I really like Omar's idea of the seventh the seventh use of dragon's blood because that is a Dumbledore reference, of course. Let's make some title predictions, though, now that we have all this new information in mind. What can they do to convince us to go see this movie? I, it's not going to have Grindelwald in it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I said that it's going to be Fantastic Beasts 3, The Lies of Dumbledore. Ooh, that's intriguing. Like that. That's intriguing. Mm-hmm. I went for the more honest title route uh, because they're doubling down on Dumbledore and Grindelwald and not so much the beasts. I said Fantastic Beasts and the oops, all humans. <laughs> Fantastic Beasts. I mean, humans. Yeah. I have, I have two. One that's kind of a joke. The one that isn't. But maybe the joke will end up being closer to the actual title. I think uh, Fantastic Beasts back to Hogwarts. <laughs> Can you imagine? You guys would you guys would quit MuggleCast. <laughs> but uh, my the one I'll hang my hat on for right now, I thought about uh, Fantastic Beasts: The Rise of the Phoenix. Ooh, I like that. That's so good. What do we get do if think... we predicted this right, Andrew? Movie rights. A uh, month of free Patreon. Movie rights. Do, sure. we get, do, do we get a Wizarding World Gold subscription? Yes. You get to see the movie first. How about that? <laughs> I'm thinking, so kind of along that line, I think Dumbledore needs to be involved, like I said, in the title. So Fantastic Beasts and the Fight for Ariana Dumbledore. Aww. Or Fantastic Beasts and Where Dumbledore Hides Them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it'd be really cool if they did like a creepy noiry uh fantastic beasts within and then it just be that just be the title fantastic, fantastic beasts. beasts and those within us yeah no fa- fantastic beasts colon within that'd be crazy within <laughs> yes i'm seeing that new movie within what but just fantastic beasts and dumbledore's back he's back <laughs> and hogwarts is everybody come see it please right now all right. Well, we will now shift our discussion to The Cursed Child. Some interesting developments there. But first... Well, Andrew, the holiday season is coming up. And I know many of our listeners, as well as the four of us, are going to be traveling. And Away knows that everyone has a different style of travel. That's why they make their carry-on in an array of colors, sizes, and materials. And both myself and Andrew have uh, gotten the opportunity to use uh, the away luggage and i can say from personal experience that traveling a lot for work it is really the perfect suitcase uh, to take with me on an airplane it's easy to pack easy to store doesn't bump into my leg when i'm carrying it through the airport (laughs) and uh, it has just a lot of great amenities that i know millennials are we technically millennials yeah i am i don't know i am I mean, I know you do a show called Millennial, but yeah, Millennials <laughs> like ourselves, uh, we need, right? Laundry bags, uh, charger for your phone or your laptop. They got it all, right, Andrew? Yeah, they do. And unlike Micah, I like going back to Hogwarts, so I love having my <laughs> away suitcase with me uh, to easily get there, no problem. And I can still charge my phone at Hogwarts while I'm there, thanks to that USB battery that it comes with. Oh, really? That works for you at Hogwarts? Yeah. Well, they don't have outlets, so I just bring my own. Oh, <laughs> Professor McGonagall gets really mad at me, but I don't mm-hmm. care because I still need my phone. You're a smart guy. Well, as we talked about, Away offers a carry-on that 
is lightweight, durable, and made to last for a lifetime of travel. There's a 100-day trial on everything that Away makes, so you can take it out on the road to Hogwarts, live with it, travel with it, get lost with it, and if you decide it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund. No ifs, ands, or asterisks about it. <laughs> the suitcases are designed to last a lifetime, but if any part of your suitcase breaks, Away's standout customer service team will arrange to have it fixed or replaced ASAP. There's a built-in compression pad that helps you pack more. I know I use that all the time. As I talked about, four 360-degree spinner wheels so you don't bump yourself in the back of the leg constantly, and a TSA-approved combination lock that helps keep your belongings safe. And I know enough cannot be said about the optional ejectable battery to, that helps keep your phone and your computer charged. There's free shipping on any away order within the contiguous U.S., Europe, and Australia. So for $20 off a suitcase this holiday season, visit awaytravel.com slash muggle and use promo code muggle during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash muggle and use promo code muggle during checkout. So just in time for the holiday season, there is a new book out for Harry Potter fans, especially if you are a fan of The Cursed Child. It's called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, The Journey Behind the Scenes of the Award-Winning Stage Production. So this book was just released. It is beautiful. A couple of us got our hands on it. It really takes you through this play like never before. And I know one of, the, one of our issues, actually, with The Cursed Child when it first came out was that J.K. Rowling wasn't really talking about it much. And, you know, particularly with the story, and we're kind of used to her talking about the story, but they wanted to, you know, keep the secrets. So we didn't really hear much about it. And this book, especially in the beginning, takes you through the the development of the story. It goes through putting that together to creating the characters, designing the wardrobes, and everything involved with putting on a play. If you are into theater, I think you are going to adore this book. What did you guys think? I definitely love the idea of it because it reminds me a lot of the film wizardry um, book that came out and be and page to screen. Anything with as much of a production value as Cursed Child has is going to turn out amazing stories and amazing like footage and coverage in a book like this that's dedicated to just explaining how they did it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I I think that. Part of what often gets lost when we have these discussions is that we're so focused in on the actual story itself, but there's a whole story behind the story, and I think that's what this book does a really great job of bringing to life, and you get to see all the decision-making that went into creating Cursed Child. Yeah, so let's touch on some of the interesting revelations. I found these at the beginning of the book, so... They go into how they is assembled the creative team, of course. And get this. I, this is like shocking to me. Director John Tiffany, way back in the day, would see J.K. Rowling writing Harry Potter 1 in a theater cafe in Edinburgh. What? Yeah. So, and they saw each other enough that they began giving each other a little nod, like a friendly hello every time <laughs> they saw each other because they were kind of acquaintances working in the same cafe all the time. So, you know, of course, what, 20 years passes, 
And then the producers are trying to figure out who they want to direct this thing. And they hear this story from John Tiffany and they can't believe it. So then they bring John Tiffany to J.K. Rowling (laughs) and Rowling said that he looked familiar. And then she found out about their connection and she thought it felt predestined that he would become involved with the cursed child. What are the chances of that? That's pretty cool. Yeah. So we also get context for why Goblet of Fire is such a big focus. They wanted to, quote, tie in something, tie into something in Harry's early life. The book said, in wanting the drama to revolve around Harry as a father to Albus, Goblet of Fire offered another father-son relationship that would create a contrast. Mm. That, of course, being Cedric and his father. They also liked the uh, three tasks because it gave them something to to, uh, focus Mm. on. Reading the intro, though, you definitely got the sense that this story was really meant to be focused in on Harry as a father figure. Yeah. There was a lot that was talked about in terms not only of Harry's story at Hogwarts being complete, but of parents. And particularly, and I'm forgetting the name of the woman who was involved in this process as well, but... As they were going to meet J.K. Rowling, she talked about her father in particular and how um, her father had passed away very young when um, they had lived in Edinburgh and actually had passed away blocks from where they were going to meet J.K. Rowling. And so she went into this meeting extremely emotional and explained the situation to J.K. Rowling. Wow. Who also has a very distant relationship with her father. So. It's interesting how all of that plays into what they ultimately decided to be the the core plot of Cursed Child. That's Sonia Friedman you're yes. referring to. She's one of the lead producers on this play. We also found out about some cut characters. So they wanted to include Dobby and Sirius Black, but they got cut because, quote, they had to have a part in the narrative. There has to be a purpose for them being there. <laughs> I actually feel like Sirius would have been a great character because he is taken from us so quickly. Mm -hmm. And by including him in The Cursed Child, we could have had more time with him. We could have had a proper goodbye. That would have been so sweet. I feel like he could have taken Snape's place. If they would have explained the veil or, uh, oh, I guess he could have taken, he could have been the alternate reality. Yeah, I don't know. Sirius's inclusion in the play might make me like double, like double take and think again about how I feel about the story, honestly. <laughs> I'm such a whore for Sirius Black. <laughs> As your former uh, instant messenger name would suggest. Exactly, exactly. But I just... what, are you, what are your thoughts on sort of the, Andrew, you, you kind of touched on this, but the predestined nature of the fact that J.K. Rowling and John Tiffany had crossed paths before Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone was even really in its, or when it was in its infancy. And then the room yeah. that this meeting is taking place in, I don't know if we we touched on this, but where J.K. Rowling is meeting with Sonia and, and, and John Tiffany is is called the Tiffany Room. Mm. And that was just completely by coincidence. They didn't know that until after they left. So there's a lot of like weird shit going on here. Um <laughs> You know, if if you believe it was all in, meant to be, Micah. That's just, yeah. That, well, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, how much do we actually believe in sort of the predestined nature of things? The fact that these two people kind of head nodded hello to each other uh, for for probably months, if not years, while the, the Potter series was was just starting out. And yeah, you know, he, yeah. There's it, it's very interesting. Like, there's a story about how John Tiffany 
saw J.K. Rowling being interviewed on television not long after Philosopher's Stone was published. And he's like, wait a second. I I know this woman. Like, this <laughs> is the woman I saw riding in the cafe. So, listener, Listeners of this show, if I ever nodded to you in a cafe or something and you become <laughs> a worldwide selling best best-selling author, please have me direct your play or include me in something of your work. Please, I'm begging you. <laughs> he promises not to give one of your main characters a daughter with wings. Uh, <laughs> uh, wing tattoos? Are they okay, Laura? Uh, it depends on... I was about to make a comment that I won't make. Okay. Anyway. As long as it's not the dark mark, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> but you mentioned, Micah, that they were talking about par- relationships with parents with J.K. Rowling in their first meeting, and that seems to be what pushed J.K. Rowling over the edge, because they all had... um you know, very unique family backgrounds. And J.K. Rowling was moved by these people wanting to do a unique story. They didn't want to just adapt the Harry Potter books for the stage. They wanted to add to the world. And they decided very early on that the play would start where the epilogue begins. So I it just, everything seemed to come together. There was some cool connections that seem surreal there was a unique story, and there was a passion there. And they came really prepared to this meeting with J.K. Rowling. I cannot imagine pitching something to J.K. Rowling. Hey, can we create the eighth story? Can we create the eighth book? <laughs> like, <laughs> that would be so terrifying to ask her. Mm-hmm. But they must have felt really passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. and and there's a, a long history that's written about between John Tiffany and Jack Thorne. Jack Thorne being the one who really ends up writing Cursed Child. And there's a a story in there about them coming out of a theater or some award show and basically uh, John Tiffany turning to Jack Thorne and and telling him that he's been greenlit to move ahead with Cursed Child and that he wants Jack Thorne to write it and he like slips on the curb as he's being told <laughs> this information because he's so shocked but one one thing that I did take away uh despite what we may all think about Curse Child the the story these two individuals really do love the series and and are huge Potter fans so maybe that's something to take away from this and and yeah they cared they cared they genuinely did. um we also get to see J.K. Rowling's letter to Jack Thorne after Jack Thorne had sent J.K. Rowling the original treatment, and she's raving about the play. And I was actually really surprised that they included this letter. That seems like something very private. But J.K. Rowling is very positive and um, says that Jack Thorne's done a really good job of capturing the characters and and just the overall vibe of the Wizarding World. And then Jack Thorne, we also get to see his reply to J.K. Rowling's letter. And of course, he is over the moon. It's it's like a lot uh, how you, how anyone listening may have felt when like a boss comes to them and says, wow, that is a tremendous job you did. Thank you for putting so, so much work and effort into this. You nailed it. Great job. Um, Jack Thorne reading something like that was just over the moon too. <laughs> that J.K. Rowling was so thrilled with his work to let someone else into her world and then praise him so much for the job he did. It it was a really nice conversation to read. And again, I really appreciated that they included those letters. But one other thing is that in these letters, J.K. Rowling says, the only thing I'm not sure about, one of the big things I'm not sure about 
is the Hogwarts headmaster being someone named Professor Marizion. Marizion. Hmm. And she said, instead, let's have a very old McGonagall be Hogwarts headmaster. Hmm. And Jack Thorne, of course, is like, oh, great idea, Joe. We'll do that. But that was interesting. So that that's an example of J.K. Rowling being involved in the development of the story. And she doesn't say it in the letters, but presumably that's what she's always had in her head. That McGonagall did take over and stay professor at Hogwarts or headmaster of Hogwarts for mm. long after Dumbledore. She must be real old. <laughs> if, yeah. If old. we're accepting Fantastic Beasts as canon. <laughs> yes. Like 110. Dumbledore's like 150, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, and women live older than men. That's right? true. So. I like the idea that so for the longest time we had heard J.K. Rowling authorize the story, but we didn't know to what extent she was involved in the decision making. So seeing examples of early drafts of the play and character decisions that they had to make like this, like this interests me. A couple other characters to talk about. Mm-hmm. Luna Lovegood. They were considering putting her in. Oh, <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> so she made it to the rehearsal phase. And then, quote, Thorne originally played with the idea that elements of the story heralding the return of darkness would be accompanied by the smell of cinnamon. We would have had the smell of cinnamon wafting through the theater. Unfortunately, things like that never work because of air conditioning, he said. Luna would have been sensitive to the smell, and she would have been in the Ministry of Magic meetings saying, has anyone smelt cinnamon? <laughs> She was being very Luna-y and very lovely and interesting, but it just felt like an in-joke for the fans who knew Luna, and we were cheapening her. Mm. I I don't understand, though. Why would darkness bring the smell of cinnamon? (laughs) Because she's Luna. (laughs) That's about as awkward as the hairy pigeon thing, which they left in, you know? That he's scared of pigeons? It seems to be beyond... The way I'm reading it, though, is it seems to be beyond Luna, it's a, it it reads like it would just be fact that when darkness comes in, so does the smell of cinnamon. Like darkness likes baking cinnamon rolls or something. Yeah, I, I just don't get <laughs> I'm it. I'm honestly so glad this is not in the play. Yeah, <laughs> but that's another cool outtake from the story. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we learn a little more about Astoria Mal- Malfoy. As we know, she died before the events of the cursed child begin or somewhere around that time um or no she's is she sick at the very beginning and then she dies i think that's it the timeline is so messed up that it's hard to remember oh because i remember scorpius telling albert albus that his mom has died yeah oh yeah but anyway yeah yeah so in the first few drafts of the show she was actually alive for the whole play but then they came to the same realization that there wasn't enough space in the story to do justice to her They asked Joe if they could kill her. (laughs) Joe, can we kill one of your characters? And they, quote, explained what that did for Draco being a single parent and what that did for Scorpius to remove her. And then Rowling thought it was an interesting idea and gave them an illness that they could uh, use to take her life, which was the blood malediction. So I thought that was an interesting little development as well. I love that because, of course, the blood malediction is one of the few tieovers and crossovers between what's that between Cursed Child and what's currently happening in the Wizarding World movie franchises, mm-hmm. with, of course, Nagini. So I like that a lot. But this was another thing where when you see the play or read the play for the first time, you probably just think, "Oh, J.K. Rowling has always had it in her head that Astoria Malfoy." 
died shortly after the events of the epilogue. Mm. But no, that doesn't appear to be the case. It's because of other people that she died. J.K. Rowling opening up her wizarding world. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would just say about this book that I think that you know, if you're a fan of The Cursed Child, if you love the story, if you love the play, it, it really does a really nice job of, of capturing the story behind the story and showing really the, how it all came to life. There's some really great sections on you know, the designing of the theater and of the casting of the characters and just all the work that goes into creating something like this. Because as we've talked about on previous episodes of MuggleCast, when we've reviewed Cursed Child, seeing it in person is is just really, truly unbelievable with what they're able to do for five straight hours. And this gives you a little bit of a glimpse of what goes into that production coming to life. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, with the holidays coming up, if anybody you know loves The Cursed Child or loves theater, I think this is an awesome book to get them. It's really beautiful to read through and just view all the pictures and there's scans of journals and like I mentioned, there's letters and all this inside info on designing the magic and the costumes is just really, really cool. One other Cursed Child thing we wanted to talk about today was this interesting report from the New York Times. This was November 5th. They reported on demand for The Cursed Child dropping on Broadway. Weekly grosses have plunged by more than 50% since their peak. Last week, for the first time, the show's weekly box office grosses slipped below $1 million. And get this, this is good news for fans. The average ticket price is now just 47% of what it was a year ago. Um, this has proved to be a challenge for the producers who spent a record $35.5 million to capitalize the play and have been banking on a long, strong run to recoup those costs. The show's slump comes at a time when Broadway, which has been booming, is looking at a down season. Overall, grosses are nearly 7% below where they were at this time last year, so it's not only the cursed child who is hurting a little bit this year, but... um. There's a couple challenges with this show. It is being staged and sold as a two-parter, the New York Times writes, generally seen two nights in a row or in a matinee plus evening marathon. That means the cost is a hurdle for some. To see both parts, you have to buy two tickets, while for others, the running time is daunting. Part one is two hours and 40 minutes, and part two is two hours and 35 minutes. Uh, the producers, who would answer questions only in writing, insist that they are not worried. Their weekly grosses are now near their weekly running costs. So basically, they're breaking even on this show at this point, which is good. But are sales going to continue to slump? Are they going to have to con continue lowering ticket prices? And then what are they going to do? Cut the Dementors to save some money? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Or worse comes to worse, they have to shut down the play. And of course, we don't want that. No. It um, producers... So, so what do you guys think of this so far? Like, why did they have to cut ticket prices? Why are they hurting a little bit? I think part of it is an accessibility issue. This show is not accessible to most people. Between the cost and also the fact that most people would have to travel and incur travel expenses in order to see it, it's not feasible for a lot of people who'd be interested. I'd be interested, but... The closest one to me is New York. And right. you're in Georgia. And I am in Atlanta, yeah. I think also, you know, Broadway in general tends to rely heavily on tourism. And this is a big commitment for people who are 
you know, in New York, let's say maybe for only a couple of days, you're, you're basically giving up an entire afternoon and evening. If you're doing it one day, Never mind if you're splitting it between two days. So I, I think that's part of the challenge that they're facing. If this was a three-hour show, then I think it would still be booming. Tickets would still be as expensive or close to as expensive as they were when the show opened. But I think the issue that they face is that it's a two-parter and you're essentially asking somebody, let's say, who doesn't live in New York, who who is or you know close enough by who's coming in with their family, maybe they're on vacation for a couple of days or a weekend. It's a lot. You know, you're asking them to spend their entire time or or not their you know what I'm saying. Like you're asking them to spend a lot of time seeing the show. Seems like these problems, but these were these were problems that they had since the beginning. like they should have been able to predict that making a two-part show across two nights which I don't want to say it's never been done before, but gosh darn it, that took some cojones. Um, you know, now that that's hurting the production, sure, like it's mildly concerned, but they knew this, they, they should have figured this, like they know about like, how will audience react to, yeah. you know, having two parts? Oh, it's, it's twice as expensive. Okay. They could have fixed that from the get go. But then again, I did see a comment when this was posted, I think in the doc or maybe on Patreon, it was somebody said that they really want to see this show and still can't get tickets because it's so sold out. So like, you know, there are people definitely that still absolutely want to see this yeah. and the dates that they're going to be in town, like ticket sales are far from like not happening. Right. The, the, the seats are far from empty. And if we're talking about a show that earns, like this is the first week since it debuted on Broadway, that it's earned less than $1 million. What? <laughs> What are we even talking about here? The show's doing fine. Well, the the problem the problem the problem though is that they need to lower the prices in order to sell it out. They couldn't keep the prices that high. And I agree that the the two partness of this whole situation is the problem here because, like Micah, you were saying, it does take up a whole day if you choose to do it in a, in in a single day, and then people just see, oh, I don't have to buy one Broadway ticket; I have to buy two. People are very accustomed to Broadway tickets being expensive, so I don't think they even bother to look at the prices. Mm. However, now that they are getting cheaper, hopefully people will take a second look. Right, and oftentimes you're not just buying for one person, though. You're, you're buying for if yeah. you're if you're a family of four, if you're you know you're going with significant other, right? You're it it, it does get up there in terms of price because let's face it, you also got to get to the theater you're you're probably going if you're doing a one day you're probably going to go out and have dinner somewhere so the expenses add up for this it's not just the cost of the ticket itself and the other thing i i don't know how much this factors into it but what about not having the original cast there anymore is that take away from some of what people might have been drawn to early on Maybe. I don't know if people ever came for the cast. I also think producers, they were comfortable with doing two parts because they just assumed, oh, Harry Potter fans, they're such big fans of the Wizarding World that they're willing to commit to a two-part play. And I'm sure that's the case for millions of people. But then there are, like Micah said, a lot of tourists that come into Manhattan and then maybe they're casual Harry Potter fans and they see, oh, I got to commit a good six hours to seeing this show. I have other things I want to do. I want to walk around Central Park. Mm. I want to go shopping. I want to—I don't know—Empire State Building, Statue of Liberty. Yeah, there's plenty of great yeah. restaurants. You know, things yeah. to do. And 
Yeah, I, I wonder though too. Are they more concerned about the cost in all of this because of the renovation that they made to the theater? I mean, this is essentially their theater for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They spent a ton of money revamping the theater. So as we've spoken about recently, there's also a new marketing campaign. There's uh, there's of course the new logo. They now use the Harry Potter movie logo in the branding it was like its own harry potter logo at the beginning and i think we were all kind of weary about that so i like that they're using the movie logo but it also now says jk rowling's harry potter and the cursed child so so they are very closely tying it to jk rowling which wasn't really the case at the beginning they said jack thorne john tiffany jk rowling everybody was involved in this but now it's it's solely focused on jk rowling They've also been using some new language, like back to Hogwarts, <laughs> and Harry is on a poster now. So they've been trying to make changes to uh, make people understand that this is a real Harry Potter play. And I say real because I think that other logo wasn't helping them. It'd be like using, did I bring this up on the show recently? It'd be like using a different logo for something that was officially Star Wars. You just stick with the one logo to keep it all together. And I think also, just from observing this in the fandom, there was a lot of questions about like, well, is this actually canon because JK Rowling didn't write it? And I have a feeling this marketing push is in part trying to resolve that issue. Trying to cover up that issue. Right. <laughs> yeah. And she did tweet, it should be considered canon. And I take that as gospel. So, but um, I think, you know, maybe we should give them our own taglines i'm thinking like harry potter and the cursed child just wait till you see what we gave voldemort <laughs> not a nose a baby <laughs> does he have a nose i don't think he has a nose in the play uh, no I, I don't think so uh i would say harry potter and the cursed child great live <laughs> <laughs> it, you gotta see it to believe it <laughs> Well, I've never seen it, so I'm going to say Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, no cinnamon. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I, I genuinely wish the best for the Cursed yeah. Child. It's, I want to see it thrive. It would be really sad if it left Broadway after... I, look, it's not going anywhere soon, but even if it left after like four or five years, I think that would be pretty then sad. Then you still have Sydney, San Francisco, Melbourne, <laughs> Toronto. Yeah, but if it can't make it on Broadway, where is it going to make it? Can't make it anywhere. No, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so this has been a news-focused episode of MuggleCast. We hope you've enjoyed us catching up on some big developments in the Wizarding World. Let's listen to a couple of voice memos now. I have to say, these two that we're going to listen to today, wow. Um, I am really impressed by you guys. <laughs> so <laughs> listen to this, you guys. Hey guys, this is Netta from Las Vegas, and I just finished listening to episode 441, where you guys were talking about Dumbledore's name and the fact that his fourth name is Brian, and I wanted to share my thoughts on the subject. Uh, so my family is from Sudan, and in my culture we have six names. Uh, the first name is actually the only one that is chosen by our parents. So my first name is Netta, and then my second name 
is my dad's first name. And then my third name is his dad's first name and so on and so forth until you get to my last name, which is just my family name, my surname, like anybody else. Um, so that's how I get my full name, which is Neda Salahuddin Eltijani Abdelgadir Muhammad Atabani. Um, I don't know what other cultures do this, but I was thinking that um, Dumbledore's name might be somewhat similar. Um, the whole point of having six names is basically to relate to people where we fall in our family tree. So if I just went up to somebody and said, my name is Netta Atabani, then they would know that my first name is Netta and I'm from the Atabani family. But if I say like my name is Netta Salahuddin Eldijani Atabani at least, then they know that I'm um, like Eldijani's granddaughter, like his son Salahuddin's daughter, um, so it just sort of is more specific. But anyway, I don't know what other cultures do this, but um, I was thinking that Dumbledore's name might be similar just because his second name is Percival, which is his dad's name also. So if that is the case, then it just means that his great grandfather's first name was Brian, which is completely normal. Uh, it doesn't really explain why all of the other names are so much more unique, but my headcanon is that Brian was either a muggle-born or that he just hated living in the wizarding world with such a mundane name like Brian, so he decided to name his son Wolfric, and Wolfric passed on the tradition. Uh, but anyway, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on the subject, so let me know what you think. All right, bye guys. Oh my god, I love yeah, this. That, yeah, that was important context. So thank you so much, Netta. Yeah, yes. I, my, my mind is my mind is blown. Percival yeah, is. Yeah, that is so cool. I think his that's father's the answer, name. Quite honestly, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Like it just, yeah, describes yeah. it so well. All right, and we spoke about running Dementors on the last episode, and one of our listeners called in with this interesting revelation. About the running Dementors you all joked about in the last episode, well, most people don't know this, since everyone had pretty much switched to DVDs by the early, I don't know, 2000s or whatever, but the original VHS version of Prisoner of Azkaban did show a Dementor running away from Harry's Patronus at the end of the movie. They took it out for the DVD, but you can clearly see on the tape that it's got big feet and it's running like hell. I've got a copy here, and if you listen really closely, you can actually hear the Dementor running. Let me just pop it in the old RCA. Oh my God. Okay, listen closely now. Here it is. Expecto Patronum! <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Oh my god, I love that. Well, there you go. Let me just pop this on out of here. Honestly, I don't know why they took that out. I think it adds a lot to the scene, but oh well. <laughs> Ten points to Gryffindor yeah. for that to that guy. Wow. Oh, Thank you. That's that more work perfect. than we've ever put into this show. Yeah, I was gonna say that. Wow. <laughs> Thank well, we you. Very uh, screaming goats and weird game show noises for when Umbridge sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was good that was good so thank you to uh, everybody who continues to write in with feedback we really appreciate it 
you don't need to have some fancy editing or you don't need to keep around a VHS player to get in touch with us. Just go to MuggleCast.com. There's a contact form right at the top. You can also email us directly, MuggleCast at gmail.com. We do also encourage voice memos. Use your phone's voice memo app because it is great quality. Mm. And then just email that file to MuggleCast at gmail.com. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way. one nine two zero three muggle is how you can call us. That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. We'd also really appreciate if you would join our community of listeners at patreon.com slash mugglecast. You get to listen live as we record. You get early access to our show notes. You get ad-free mugglecast. You get bonus mugglecast. And you get a whole lot more, including things like a monthly on-video hangout with the mugglecasters if you pledge at the Slug Club level. And, of course, we do a physical gift each year. And uh, coming up for next week's episode, if... Our listeners have any thoughts or questions on Chapter 9 of Order of the Phoenix, The Woes of Mrs. Weasley, definitely send them in. We love uh, hearing what you have to say about the chapter. Yeah, absolutely. We will resume next week unless J.K. Rowling announces that Fantastic Beast is going to be renamed back to Hogwarts. Then I think we're going to have a lot more to talk about. (laughs) Well, she did tweet earlier this week, but it looks like her account is just becoming a marketing account at this point. Yeah, I think it's like her rep just tweeting what the franchise wants her to send out. Do you guys follow her on Facebook? She makes no posts there except for official stuff, Mm -hmm. like what's been tweeted recently. I think that's exactly what's happening now, Micah. Got it. End of an era. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We are skipping Quizage this week. We will resume next week with Chapter by Chapter. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.